Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, welcome to another La Trobe Asia event. I'm Ewan Graham. I'm the executive director here. And it's my great pleasure to be joined on the panel today for a discussion on the Indo-Pacific and Australia's East-West perspectives um, by uh, Gordon Flake, the CEO of the Perth US Asia Centre, and Erin um, Watson-Lynn, who um, runs the Indo-Pacific programme but in a previous incarnation, probably known to many of you in the audience anyway, as an old Melbourneite who used to work for AsiaLink. This uh, initiative um, grows sort of naturally out of uh, a very intensive two and a half day um, event that we've been uh, running collaboratively here in this very room with several other participants uh, in the audience to gather together some uh, young leaders, uh, Melbourne and Victoria based looking principally at the US-Australia alliance, but very much with an outward regional um, our cone of knowledge looking out to the Indo-Pacific, which is now the official way that Australia for some years has, has uh, talked about its, uh, its surrounding macro region involving everything from the South Pacific uh, right through to uh, India, Pakistan, up north uh, to Russia, China. So a great, um, a vast track that almost defies description as a, as a region. We, I call it a macro region sometimes, and other people take issue with it. We've had um, some speakers who've introduced notes of scepticism about how much validity the, the Indo-Pacific uh, has as a, uh, as a, uh, a framing concept for, for strategic geography for Australia and for the, for the region. Uh, and I think there's uh, no, no two better panelists uh, who are equipped to pass that um, Gordon, I've been um, wanting to do an event with you for many years, and I'm glad we finally get a chance to do it, and with my Latrobe hat on. Um, Gordon, I've interacted with uh, for a number of years, uh, and we share a common interest in uh, in Korea, in the both South and North Korea. North Korea, where um, Gordon was speaking on that topic at AII uh, Victoria just um, last night, and um, I'm glad we've snaffled you for a, a podcast afterwards, uh, Gordon. Pleasure. Uh, Gordon spent 25 years in the think tank world, so um, is a rather rare uh, breed of professional think tanker, um, but took that, that um, uh, encapsulated experience from Washington, D.C., and took it um, to uh, Perth just um, uh, 2014 when he took over uh, as the, the founding CEO of uh, Perth U.S. Asia Center, uh, since when um, Gordon has been a walking dynamo of uh, Indo-Pacific effervescence, uh, and uh, I'm very glad to be able to, to, to bring him here and um, into the conversation and to share his insights with you. Uh, and as I said, Erin, uh, it's great to interact with you with your um, Perth Asia uh, hat on as well. Um, and um, it's been a, a pleasure to do the event with the, with the young leaders over the last um, couple of days. And what I'm looking to Erin for, um, as well as Gordon's Washington versus Perth macro exp expanse. Um, but this event that we just held uh, is the third in a series that has been sort of roadshowed around Australia from Perth uh, to Brisbane uh, and now to Melbourne. So I thought it'd be also useful just to distill both of their perspectives to see um, what their um, analysis is of the Indo-Pacific uh, as, as it differs um, from what to quote the old adage, where you, where you stand depends on where you sit. So geography matters, uh, local geography matters as well. So it, it looks different if you're facing to the Indian Ocean from an Australian vantage point than if you're facing here to the Southern Ocean 
or if from Sydney into the South Pacific. So we're looking at it really from that kind of variation of, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll play around with our, um, uh, our lens on the Indo-Pacific. Um, maybe, um, Gordon, I'll, I'll start with you. Um, 25 years of uh, distilled Washington Asia experience, um, most of which time United States still referred to the Asia Pacific, um, but now it has um, officially adopted the, the Indo-Pacific and put on a couple of um, rider uh, words to that, the free and open uh, Indo-Pacific. Um, having followed Australia's lead, you could say, because Australia was first out of the traps with its 2013 defence white paper that coined the, the Indo-Pacific. Um, so maybe you can just share your experience of how you think uh, the Australian definition differs, if it does at all, uh, from that used in the United States. Well, thank you, Ewan. It's, it's a great honour to be here, uh, and we've really appreciated the opportunity to collaborate together with Latrobe Asia for the last uh, three days on what was a, a fascinating um, workshop with some of the, I think, the best and the brightest of, of Victoria, uh, who will be very important, to, not just in the Australia-US relationship going forward, but in the broader Indo-Pacific. Uh, I'll start with that uh, truism, you know, that axiom that, uh, that Ewan laid out, that where you stand depends very much on where you sit. And I always knew that to be true, but I hadn't thought about it a lot. Uh, I will confess from the very beginning that while I was in Washington, D.C., uh, I made fun of the concept of the Indo-Pacific. I thought it was a silly academic notion that really had no real utility for policymakers. I mean, you combine the entire Pacific Ocean with the entire Indian Ocean, you've got two-thirds of the world, why not just be global? It just it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, and then since I've moved to Perth almost six years ago, uh, everything we do is Indo-Pacific. Every program at the Perth U.S. Asia Center, we tend to brand Indo-Pacific. I jokingly say that my uh, grandchildren have the middle name Indo-Pacific and we all have Indo-Pacific tattoos. And part of that is, is intentional. Part of that is just promoting our role and promoting Australia's role. Uh, but let me explain to you a little bit about my own personal evolution on that issue because it hasn't been all self-serving. When I began my professional career, which is now over 30 years ago, Nobody used the term Asia-Pacific, you know, beyond, again, academics who were kind of ahead of the curve. Uh, I was focused on East Asia, and, and we were very much focused on China and, and Korea and Japan, but really at that point, Korea and Japan. If you, if you recall, it was Japan, the economic miracle. It was the flying geese pattern of economic development. You had Japan, then the four tigers, you know, Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Singapore. They were falling behind that. And that's where the attention was. We didn't think a lot about regionalism. We didn't think about regional infrastructure organizations. We were just focused on those individual economies. And so at the time, it really was Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, still largely viewed through a problem kind of you know, prism mentality. It was the Vietnam War that kind of defined that era. Uh, the contest with communism in that era. Uh, South Asia was a land apart that n almost never intruded into our discussions. It was handled differently, bureaucratically, etc. And Australia was part of this mystical land called Oceania. Yeah, it was right next to Atlantis and New Zealand, just hanging out there somewhere, right? Uh, and it really wasn't until the late 1980s, early 1990s, when two things happened. The economic powerhouses of Northeast Asia recognized that they needed both labor and markets in Southeast Asia. So they wanted to integrate vertically down. Right? At the same time, a series of Australian governments, probably most strongly led by the Keating government, decided that Australia needed to, to 
understand its neighborhood, that they were part of Asia and they wanted to be part of Asia. So there was a real push to integrate north, both Australia and New Zealand. Uh, and that took the place of the creation of regional architecture. Uh, the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation Initiative, APEC, was actually thought up and, and formulated around a, a table at ANU as people discussed it. Um, they call that four adjectives in search of a noun, you know, but it became one of the first of the regional infrastructures in the region. And then a lot of them came tacked on to ASEAN. Uh, so you began to see Australia thinking of itself as part of the region, and we began to use the term Asia-Pacific. So the, by, by the time I was five, ten years into my career, that was the most commonly used descriptor of the region to the point where it wasn't even controversial in any way, shape, or form. And yet, there's no such thing as membership in the Asia-Pacific. There are lots of different formulations. Some organizations, including APEC, will include the Pacific Rim countries of both North and South America. Others focus a lot more on the Pacific Islands. Others tended to focus much more on ASEAN centrality. So it just depended on the initiative and the organization, what you were talking about. If I were to ask you today, what is the Asia-Pacific and who's in it, you could come up with five or six different definitions, depending on what it is. But really what happened was, over time, there were two major trends that began to shift things. On the positive side, India began to grow. And as India grew, people began to think about the potential of India and its integration into the Asia-Pacific. So I believe at its core, there's a lots of other issues around the Indo-Pacific, but at its very core, the term Indo-Pacific is fundamentally about one thing. How do we incorporate India into the Asia-Pacific? Because heretofore, it had been excluded. It wasn't part of APEC. It wasn't part of any Asia-Pacific initiatives or discussions, right? Uh, then there were a couple of recent developments in where it became one. India is a member of the East Asia Summit. India is now a negotiating party to the Regional Cooperative Economic Partnership Agreement. So in many respects, the, the Indo-Pacific, even before the formal usage of the term, you know, became a recognized uh, identity because India was already in it. But still, many governments, and there's still today many governments, continue to have a Asia-Pacific Bureau, and a South Asia Bureau or South Asia and the Middle East Bureau. So there was this artificial line dr drawn between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, like a magic line that just kind of stopped right there. And the funny thing is where bureaucratic lines are drawn, you end up having a remarkable lack of coordination. You don't tend to see things like that. So you know, how you draw bureaucratic lines often determines strategy, often determines resources in terms of the process. Um, when our center was launched. It was actually launched in November of 2012 uh, in theory. There was an Osman ministerial, a U.S.-Australia 2 plus 2 meeting. The ministers of defense and, and foreign affairs, U.S. Secretary of State and defense, they met in Perth. And again, it's not a coincidence that it was Perth. And, and at the time, Hillary Clinton gave a speech launching the Perth U.S. Asia Center, uh, unveiled a plaque. We didn't legally exist then, but she unveiled a plaque. And in that speech, she referred to it as the Indo-Pacific. And there were several subsequent Obama speeches that used that terms as well. At the time, they largely did that specifically to suck up to the Aussies, right? So in other words, they knew, ah, if you go to Australia, you need to say Indo-Pacific because the Aussies like that, right? But there were others who began to think much more expansively. Uh, first and foremost, the Pacific Command. The largest combatant command in the United States military forces, centered in Hawaii, who has always been Indo-Pacific in nature, right? 
their purview extended well into the Indian Ocean, actually to the Pakistani border. And so they were Indo-Pacific from the beginning, not just Pacific, uh, and they were led by Harry Harris, you know, who's now the current uh, ambassador to Seoul and was almost the ambassador to Australia, but a, what now seems to be typically fickle decision. Um, and, and Harry was, was passionate about, you know, he used the term Indo-Asia-Pacific, but he you know, was passionate in driving the change of the Indo-Pacific, the name of the Pacific Command to the Indo-Pacific Command. And that change just took place in um, May of, of 2018, right before the Shangri-La Dialogue. Since that point, uh, there's been some other really big shifts. Uh, in November of 2017, so it was actually slightly before that, when President Trump was in, in Hanoi for the APEC meetings, he gave a big speech outlining an Indo-Pacific strategy where he focused on a phrasing uh, which is called free and open Indo-Pacific. This was Japanese phrasing that he used, uh, but it was phrasing that was largely empty of strategy. And to their credit, uh, the State Department has spent a good chunk of the last year and a half coming up with the specific strategies to what that actually means, what is an Indo-Pacific strategy, et cetera, in terms of going forth in the problem. Uh, the last thing I'll mention, I've gone on too long and we want to hear from Aaron, is that from a perspective of Perth where, again, we had been Indo-Pacific evangelists, you know, pushing this concept, the, the, the decision by the Trump administration and President Trump himself to articulate a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy was a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it's good, right? You know, if, if the President of the United States used the term, that means it really has arrived. On the other hand, you know, the way it was presented by President Trump was, shall we say, not the most carefully nuanced way to present it, right? Uh, and, and it came across as kind of a U.S.-Japanese anti-China alliance. Because what he wasn't talking about wasn't the region, he was talking about a strategy for the region. And there's a big difference there, right? So a free and open Indo-Pacific strategy, number one, recognizes the Indo-Pacific as a geoeconomic reality, and then it posits a specific strategy. But the problem is that that geoeconomic reality, the, the phrasing had not yet solidified yet. So I think there was a lot of kind of working backwards to kind of clean up the mess that had to be done to convince Southeast Asians in particular and ASEAN, still unsuccessfully Koreans and others who are skeptical about the term, that to use the term Indo-Pacific does not necessarily mean that you're joining a U.S.-Japan alliance against China, that you're really just talking about a broader region in which India has a much more important role. So that's kind of where we are today. Again, there'll be a lot more nuance we can get into too, but I've already gone on too long, so I'll stop there. So the name change from Asia-Pacific, which was the more or less conventionally accepted term in Australia and throughout the region to Indo-Pacific, doesn't occur in, in isolation. Uh, we've got uh, other formulations. Eurasia has sort of come back into vogue as well. We had uh, um, the European uh, writer Bruno uh, Masayash, who's also written a book on the new Eurasian concept. Uh, it's, a, it's a term that you even hear in Korea um, these days. Uh, you mentioned the East Asia Summit. One of the big criticisms of the Indo-Pacific is that Asia is not referenced in the, in the formulation. Therefore, that could be perceived as a snub to, to Asia. Um, but Asia itself um, is also a rather plastic term. Where do you draw the line with Asia? In, in Central Asia, is it in? Is it out? Where is it a magical line down the Urals uh, that defines the difference between Europe and Asia? I think part of the problem is that Asia uh, has always been, I think, um, a, a partly a, a concept of the mind as much as one of, the, of geography. 
uh, and the Indo-Asia Pacific, I think probably the ultimate hedge, foot, foot in three camps. Um, and what that tells you, I think, is that you know, at a basic level, things are changing. When people are trying to look for new ways to reframe and redefine uh, your strategic geography, it, it tells you that things are in ferment somehow. Um, thanks for that, Gordon. I'd like to come now to, to you, Erin. Um, uh, the saying that all politics is local, maybe you can extend that to all geopolitics is, is local. Um, I'd be really interested in your perspective, having participated in, in three of these workshops now and having made the move from Melbourne to Perth personally, how you see that, it, what is the difference in perspective on an, uh, from an Australian um, landscape uh, on this terminology of the Indo-Pacific? Thanks, Ewan. Thanks very much, Gordon, for um, introducing this concept so well. Um, I think I, I want to start right back at why this seemed like such an obvious concept for me personally. So when I uh, first worked out in India um, and then continued to work on research projects and um, programs in India for seven years later and had, been, had, had grown up 400 kilometres south of the most isolated capital city in the world in Western Australia, the Indo part of this just seems really obvious to me. Um, so, and, and just to add to what you were saying there, you and about conceptualisations of different areas, when I was out in India that first time, I was working in a sub-regional office for South and Southwest Asia, which included Iran. So but we could get to that perhaps later when we talk about going out to the Middle East. But anyway, um, so I came over to the east coast of Australia when um, at the very beginning of my career to, to um, study. And, <clears throat> but the Western Australian parochialism is strong and it kind of comes with you. I don't think it ever really leaves you. So in those 12 years over here, um, one of the things that I often did was just naturally fall back to that Western Australian perspective. And so in my previous role at AsiaLink, um, which I'm wondering now if perhaps needs to be changed to Indo-Pacific Link. <laughs> I don't know if that rolls off the tongue in the same way. Um, one of the things that I used to always focus on was trying to bring in that Western Australian perspective because often you'd be sitting in Canberra or in Melbourne or in Sydney or in Brisbane and there was actually this kind of lack of understanding that if you look at Australia, there's this entire coast in Western Australia and there's this entire ocean called the Indian Ocean over there. Um, and I think largely from people's mindsets because of where they sit, that is actually missing. There's this real misunderstanding, well not misunderstanding, it just doesn't come into, into the thinking that perhaps sitting over there in Western Australia, we might think slightly differently about the world. Um, and so part of what we would do is, to, if we were doing an event like we have for the last three days, always drag in a Western Australian politician or a Western Australian minister. And I think that Australia's foreign policy over here, in well, up in Canberra, has really benefited from the fact that we've had defence ministers, foreign ministers, and that, that streak does continue that are based on the West Coast. How might our foreign policy thinking be different if we hadn't had Stephen Smith, who uh, used the term Indo-Pacific originally, and then Julie Bishop, who continued that use in the foreign policy white paper, and now with Linda Reynolds. So how we might, how, what our foreign policy might look like if we didn't have those particular people in those roles at that time. Um, so 
going back to Western Australia was such an extraordinary privilege because I think sitting over here I understood that and the, the contribution that you can make to Australia's foreign policy sitting on the west coast of Australia is actually very unique. Um, in Melbourne, where there's lots of people and lots of organisations and doing fantastic work, including La Trobe Asia, on you know, Australia's understanding of Asia and engagement with Asia, it's all really, really important work. But it, is, it tends to be one, perspe well, it's one perspective. It's, you know, whereas actually working in Western Australia, where there's one foreign policy think tank, it actually gives a very different view of the world. Um, so... So what I've found in these regional workshops is that's probably, I don't want to say it's true, it, it's true, it's, it's um, it, you know, in where, when you're in Western Australia, those young people, you don't have to try and convince them that this is something, that the Indo-Pacific is uh, this, this new grand idea that we should all embrace. I think it's quite a natural thing for people to go, of course. Can I just jump in on that? Because mm. which part of the Indo are they? naturally gravitating towards there isn't there also a kind of cognitive barrier in terms of being open to the the pacific part of the indo-pacific which has now uh, occupied such a large slice of of policy bandwidth in canberra with the so-called step up uh, is it is it a natural uh, are they naturally conjoined the idea of of australia being a south pacific present country as much as, a, as a, an, in, an Indio, an India looking uh, country from, from Perth. Did, do the Pacific Islands register on the average Perth inhabitants consciousness? <laughs> Probably not. I think, um, no, but, no, but that's okay because you've got a critical mass of people here thinking about, uh, well, you've got, you know, some people thinking about the Pacific and some people thinking this way. I think what they naturally gravitate towards is just the geographic reality of where they sit. And that is why they are easily able to embrace the Indo part and think, well, of course that would make sense. And then it's everything from there where you're sitting out in the east coast of Australia and everything here and that's in between. Um, so, but having, and I, and I don't disagree with you. And you know, I think for me personally, you the way we look at the world is this particular way that's on a map. And you showed your map when you shift uh, Australia into the centre of the map and you see where we are in the world. But the same can be said for other regions. Western Australia is not actually that far from South America if you look at the map differently as well. So we have this very fixed idea of what the world looks like based on school books and maps that we were given um, for most of our lives. So, so can I chime in on that a little bit? Um, in any concept, there are winners and losers. Uh, and to be really blunt, in the transition from Asia-Pacific to Indo-Pacific, the Pacific Islands and the South Pacific are losers. And again, that, that sounds really categorical, but you know, in part, because Asia-Pacific was the joining of Northeast Asia and Oceania, together with Southeast Asia, Oceania came along with Australia and New Zealand. It wasn't like there was this great initiative in Fiji to be part of the Asia-Pacific, right? But ASEAN really wasn't the center. You know, if you talk about Asia-Pacific as a whole, it's hard to make the case that it was, it was ASEAN centrality-based in terms of the Asia-Pacific as a region. The Indo-Pacific, and again, this is one of the reasons why I think the ASEAN nations have been initially slow to warm to it, but I think they're likely to be more and more uh, supportive of a going future. If you look at the diagonal between the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean, that puts Indonesia right at the fulcrum point. 
and parts of Australia, as close as we can get to the rest in Singapore. So it puts them right in the middle, right in the center. What it doesn't do, though, is it puts the Pacific Islands in there. They become more peripheral than they already were. Because if, if the Asia-Pacific was the membership of APEC, or the Pacific Basin Economic Cooperation Council, and you're bringing in the West Coast of the Americas, you know, all of a sudden there, the Pacific Islands are right in the middle, right? Yeah. But Indo-Pacific kind of shifts that, shifts that priority a little bit. Now, in here, I'll agree entirely with Aaron. You know, I've been in Perth almost six years, you know, whereas Australian foreign policy historically has these tremendous strengths in PNG, in Timor, in the South Pacific. We do not have those levels of interest in, in, the Western, in Western Australia. Instead, you know, being the engine of the Australian economy, the, it's certainly the engine of Australia's exports, right? All those coming out of Western Australia, going through the Indian Ocean, through the Straits of Malacca, up into Northeast Asia, you have to think about Indo-Pacific from the very beginning because the very lifeline goes through both Indian Ocean and Pacific Ocean. So that's kind of why it's a WA perspective in that regard. But that likewise focuses on the middle. The broader and I think more important part of that shift, though, which I think it may sound, well, well, we're ignoring our historic strengths. But if you move away from the past and look to the future, we remain convinced that the future for Australia lies in Southeast Asia, in our nearest neighbor in particular, Indonesia, which by most estimates by 2050 will be fifth or fourth largest economy in the world with a population of 400 million people with, with India. So it's that shift kind of westerly in terms of the process. And the challenge that I perceive personally is that because of our history and our affinity, Australia has a lot of muscle memory when it comes to PNG and Timor and the South Pacific. And so I like the Pacific step up, sure, sounds great. But my personal view is Australia is much bigger than that, right? The notion that we should lead with the Pacific step up, we're more than that, right? We're an Indo-Pacific power. We're not just taking care of our backyard with little tiny small nation, nation states, right? We've got a much bigger role to play in the region. So the last thing I'll mention on this is in January of this year, uh, you and I both were at the, you're at the Fullerton Forum, at the Fullerton Forum in, in uh, Singapore, which is the Sherpas meetings for the Shangri-La Dialogue. And Christopher Pine, then Minister of Defense, gave a really good speech, except he led with 15 minutes on the Pacific step up in Singapore. That was the first part of his speech, which might have played really good in, 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 in Suva, in, the, in Fiji, but was the wrong thing to lead with in Singapore. Now, I'm happy with Pacific Step five minutes towards the end, but that's not what you should have led with in terms of Australia's role in the region. And that's part of that moving from a more historical East Coast-centric view of where our strengths used to be to where they need to be in the future. So where you stand depends on, on where you sit. It's an easier sell uh, if you have Indian Ocean frontage and Pacific frontage. Uh, it naturally puts one at the center of things. So I think that's uh, one obvious um, plus point for, for Australia in the Indo-Pacific. Indonesia, as Gordon mentions, the archipelago naturally sits at the fulcrum point. One interesting counterpoint to though, of course, there is another South Pacific nation that we haven't mentioned yet, New Zealand. And New Zealand has been in lockstep in terms of terminology with Australia uh, in embracing APEC, the Asia-Pacific framing, um, for, for, for more than two decades, perhaps three decades. Uh, but it's also been rather reticent about embracing the Indo-Pacific. And it's not hard to see why, because the, the, Indian, the Indian Ocean part, do you want to say a little bit about that? Yeah, I do, actually. So <clears throat> um, uh, in my previous role, one of, the, uh, one of my tasks was to help convene the Australia-ASEAN-New Zealand dialogue. So um, I got to know our New Zealand counterparts quite well. 
and uh, the Executive Director of Asia New Zealand Foundation. I, good friends, but we're also uh, good at arguing with each other about the Asia-Pacific and Indo-Pacific concepts. And we have done it many dialogues. So I actually, that actually cut through with, um, with their Executive Director and he and their Director of Research and Partnerships actually, they do, they do an annual trip to Australia because they believe that what happens in, um, in Australia usually follows in New Zealand six to 12 months later. So it's just a little bit slower to get there. If we're debating Huawei, they'll probably be having the same debate six, 12 months later. So they come over to Australia every year. They tend to go to Canberra, Sydney and Melbourne. They go and do the rounds um, at the universities and the think tanks and government. They take their notes and back they go to New Zealand. But this year was the first year that they said, all right, Erin, we're going to come over to Western Australia. And we did a full day forum with the Kiwis who we'd never, I don't think you'd ever done anything with the Kiwis before, got them out to Western Australia. And we actually sat down and we worked through what are those convergences and divergences in our thinking. And they certainly left saying they actually learned something and we learned something from them as well. It was a really valuable experience. And I'm not going to say that they are completely bought into the concept, but they certainly have a better understanding about why we might use the concept. And so that's actually been a really, really healthy um, addition to their thinking and ours. And so the New Zealanders are open, but they have found it very, very difficult because of the fact of, you know, again, where you stand is where you sit. So just real quick on this. I mean, one of the reasons I remain confident that even New Zealand, which is actually, we're closer to Hong Kong and Perth than we are to, to Wellington. And I, I have to confess, I've not been to New Zealand. People, uh, you know, from the U.S. assume that Australia and New Zealand are like, it's like going from Manhattan to New Jersey. They think it's just right across the way, right? Um, and, and, you know, from Perth, it's an awful long ways away. So I have not been involved in that. But there is a narrative which gives me confidence that the New Zealanders will follow, even if it's 12 or 24 months behind. And that is the shifting economic center of gravity in the region. So 30 years ago, when I began my professional career, indisputably, the economic center of gravity in Asia, or the Indo-Pacific, however you want to call it, was in Northeast Asia. And over the last 25 years, the, develop, the, change, the development that changed everything was the rise of China. Its growth has changed almost everything you can think of right now. But what that meant is that the economic center of gravity began to shift southwest. Now, um, I don't know anybody who looks carefully at Chinese demographics, Chinese economy, Chinese political system that thinks that the defining development for the next 25 years will be Chinese growth. China is still going to be big. They're going to be powerful. Uh, if they take a false step, you know, their dissolution or de decoupling could be the defining development. But if things go the way we hope and need and want it to go, the defining development of the next 25 years will be the growth of ASEAN as a whole, already at 600 million people, already as a block in the top 10 economies in the world. And again, as a block, will certainly be in the top five, right? Um, and Indonesia in particular, of India, that broader region. So in other words, the economic center of gravity in the region will continue to shift southwest. And given the fact that you know, New Zealand, for all their shared expertise in the South Pacific, that's aid, that's backdoor stuff. That's not essential for New Zealand's economy. That's not essential for New Zealand's longer-term strategy. They will remain just as much as Australia focused on those broader developments in the region on which they depend for their, again, export-driven economy. So.
Gordon's point is, I think, is a powerful one that this pendulum of geoeconomic pendulum is gradually moving uh, westwards and will pull um, not just Australia with it, but we can also perhaps um, deduce from that that some of China's geoeconomic manoeuvring is also an anticipation of that. The move west, uh, the Belt and Road, the increased interest in maritime connectivity that runs through the Indian Ocean. So thank, thank you very much um, for you for coming, for your questions. But uh, also, please um, extend a, a round of uh, applause to Professor Gordon Flake and Erin Watson-Lynn. Thank you. Thank you.